Hi. Welcome to Colonial Williamsburg, past and present, on History.org. This is Behind the Scenes, where you meet the people who work here. That's my job. I'm Lloyd Dobbins, and mostly I ask questions. The Lester Longwool sheep looks like a walking mass of curls. The ringlets fall into their eyes and spiral off their bodies in thick tufts. This abundance of wool meant an abundance of work for colonial tradesmen and women. Harry McDougall, the shepherdess or animal husbander, is here to tell us more. I have heard, and don't know if it's true, that sheep were not dreadfully popular in Colonial Williamsburg. Is that true or not true? Well, we are an English colony, and uh, the English were very fond of beef. (laughs) But uh, they were certainly eating mutton. And by the records that uh, we can go through, um, it appears that the sheep holders or people who own sheep in this particular area, not everyone did, but those that did, the average number was about 10. And uh, in Patrick Henry's area, which is Hanover County at this time, the average was about six. George Washington had 600 at Mount Vernon alone. So uh, wealth was something to do with, had something to do with that. So... Lester Longwolves are a rare breed. Why do you have them here? Well, first and foremost, they play an important part in our livestock history. I'm sure you've never heard the name Robert Bakewell. That's right. I've never heard the name Robert Bakewell. <laughs> Most people haven't. But he has affected our agriculture in ways that we probably will never truly understand. Um, with our sheep, he created an animal that had offspring that looked just like the parent. And we understand that today as a breed. And he developed it by forming, he didn't call it a breed standard, but he formed a breed standard and bred to it exclusively. And uh, by the 19th century, there were breed standards for everything, including chickens and doves (laughs) and uh, rabbits. And uh, all of that is because of the work that Robert Bakewell did with our Lester Longwool sheep. In fact, it was illegal to import wool sheep to the colony starting very early in our uh, colony's history. And so when George Washington wrote to uh, the fellow back in England, he wrote, and I'm going to paraphrase because it's a very long letter that deals with a lot of different things, and it's easily found if you go to Mount Vernon's website and pull up George Washington's letters to Arthur Young. You're, it's very easy to find. But in it, I'm going to just paraphrase, George Washington writes, It really is a shame that it is illegal to import these Bakewell sheep, for they have greatly improved my flock. Hmm. Well, okay. At least Bakewell did something (laughs) worthwhile. It's worth worth remembering. Well, he made uh, a good deal of money with that particular uh, notion of sheep. In fact, in an era where 90% of the population is involved in agriculture, everybody has seen a sheep. They would hold letting fairs where you would be able to observe all of the sheep and then all of the rams, and then bid on the ram that you think would most improve your flock. Well, Robert Bakewell put all of his sheep in a tent where they could only be viewed against other sheep, other lester sheep, and then charged people to look at them. And people paid. (laughs) And all these other farmers are, you know, hey, look at this man, look at the money he's making. And so this notion caught on very, very quickly. Well, it would if you could make money at it. Indeed. Sort of. Legitimately. Now, Lester Longwools implies a lot of wool. Uh, good for the colonies? Well, if they could get it. Now, I said George Washington was a very wealthy man, and he apparently broke the law to acquire these sheep. And by the way, in, further on in that letter, he does say, to his benefit, 
that uh, he would never in- encourage a ship's captain to take on such a risk as breaking the law. But since this one already had, he felt obliged to relieve him <laughs> of, of those rams. So the sheep that Ro- George Washington were breeding were only half Leicester, and he sent uh, nine of those fleeces back to England to be commercially produced. Five of them were combed, and four of them were carded and then woven into various products. And Arthur Young gave uh, statements regarding each, and uh, almost all of the products that came out of those fleeces were incredibly favorable. So, yes, it was a very important animal to us. Um, How much of it was spun and woven in colonial Virginia? Probably not a whole lot because it was illegal to import them, and you had to be very wealthy in order to acquire them. Do we still do any wool work? Here. Uh, in fact, yesterday uh, I sheared a sheep, and I'll be shearing another ewe today. They'll be the last of my ewes, and they'll be ready for lambing uh, at Easter time. So please come back and, and see us at Easter to see our lambs. Uh, but we shear the wool, and then we would sell the fleeces to hand spinners. They're probably our biggest customer here at Colonial Williamsburg um, because it is a rare breed. There are only 600 registered lusters in the entire country. So if you want to get a, your hands on a fleece, here's a good place to find one. Um, it is a long staple. It can be six to eight inches in length. And as a hand spinner, it's really fun to work with that kind of length of wool. Uh, now, Max Hamrick is weaving right now a Lester Long Wool Blanket, which March 8th and 9th we hope to be fulling. And fulling is a process that takes this uh, fabric right off the loom and works it to bring the fibers closer together and fluff up the nap. So you want a blanket that's nice and warm and fluffy. And uh, if you join us March 8th and 9th, we would love to have you help us full this blanket. What is fulling? Well, it's the process of taking this fabric off the loom. You put it in hot water, and then you add soap and fuller's earth, and then you get a lot of people to help you beat it. Okay, and then that you I understand. Pass it to the next person, <laughs> and uh, it's you're working as a team so that the wool doesn't get worked a whole lot in one particular area. You're mm-hmm. working with this wet wool, and if you've ever taken a really favorite wool sweater and accidentally got it into the washing machine and the dryer, you fold it. Oh, whether I wanted to or not. <laughs> it's going to be a lot smaller than when you started. <laughs> well, does that happen to the, to this blanket that gets fluffy and? It will. It will. It, it shrinks. It will shrink. It will shrink in length and width, and that's part of the fulling. Um, you have to know when to stop, and then you will put it on something called a tenter's hook, and it's a. That sounds familiar, <laughs> but not not favorably. It's a frame that has nails on it, and you would put this wet fabric on there so that it dries in the type of shape that you would like. So if you took that wet sweater out of the washing machine and pulled it. It will probably not go back to its original size, but it'll be a better shape than if you hadn't done that. Okay. Now, when you get it on this frame, I was going to say, uh, as you have been fulling it, the fabric has been shrinking because it's wet and it has soap and what's something called fuller's earth. Yes, it's kind okay. of an abrasive. Now, when you when you stick it on this tenterhook frame, would that stretch it out? You're going to stretch it so that it's, okay, you want a blanket to be blanket size. You don't want it skinny in the middle or too fat in the middle. You want it to be pretty uniform around the edges, and it helps with that. And you can stretch it some. Now, back in 1550, there were laws passed by the 
English government on the Welch because they were stretching it way too much. What would happen if you did? Uh, I believe it would injure the integrity of the blanket. It oh, might make okay. it weak in some spots. Oh, all right. How did you learn to do that? How did you learn to, to full sheep shearings the old way, which is, well, this I is presume, <laughs> the old way? The, um, actually, the sheep shearing part of the process is what brought me to Williamsburg. I wanted to learn how to shear sheep with hand shears. And hand shearing is uh, very, uh, I think it's a very peaceful process. You take this very woolly, nearly blind sheep with wool in her eyes, and when she gets up and runs away from you, she's going to be absolutely shiny and clean-faced and clean-legged and just look like a beautiful, clean animal. And what's left on the ground in front of you is a... it looks like a bear rug, the shape of a bear rug, and it's fiber that I, I can make a multitude of things out of. Why did you want to be a sheep shearer, <laughs> a, a hand sheep shearer, which I think would, requires, like, clippers? You Yeah, the difference between hand shears um, and regular scissors, which people usually associate them with, is scissors require you to open and shut them with your hands. Hand shears, you just close them. There's a spring action in the end of the shears that allow it to spring open with every, it's called a blow. Every cut you take is called a blow. And so um, it's, with every motion of your hand, it springs back open. So you only have one motion you have to make when you're shearing. But as to why I would prefer hand shears over electric shears, electric shears are very loud and noisy and scary to the sheep. Um, You can't talk to someone else while you're shearing if you're using these loud things. But probably the biggest reason is that electric shears go very, very fast. You don't have that problem with hand shears. (laughs) Okay. What trades use wool or used wool in the 18th century? You would be amazed how many trades use wool products. Uh, We could start with the wig makers. That's the first one that comes to mind. Um, They will be using sheep fat uh, rendered into making a pomade to dress the wigs. Okay. They have uh, stuffing. It's, it's a pad that they use beneath the hair to l- elevate the hair on the wig. And that pad is made either with ox hair or sheep's wool. Actually, sheep's wool sounds a bit more comfortable, <laughs> is it? Well, it's just, it's just a, a pad. It's encased in, in fabric that allows you to elevate your hair without having to tease it a whole lot. Who else? Um, of course, the Manitou makers, the tailors, they'll be using wool in their garments. Uh, they also use it in cruel work to make beautiful embroidery. Mm-hmm. Um, you're using it at the apothecary, and the apothecary has some very interesting uh, ways of using wool. If you think about uh, poultices, which we don't talk about much today, but a poultice was used to draw out boils and poisons and things like that. Well, your poultice would be applied to wool flannel and then applied to the skin. Okay. to keep you from getting burned from the actual poultice. Uh, see, the Coopers are uh, helping us because they make objects that hold water and feed. Mm-hmm. And, um, they're, of course, their uh, trade affects ours greatly. Um, the foodways, of course, use our uh, sheep in a whole different manner. Yeah. Um, <laughs> okay. We won't go into that a whole lot, but... <laughs> Uh, it's amazing how many across the boards. Uh, even today, right now, the Eiffel Tower, is a, its original elevator that was installed in the mid-1800s, is still being lubricated with mutton fat because with all of our technology, we haven't found anything better than mutton fat to keep this <laughs> elevator going. 
That's Colonial Williamsburg, past and present this time. Let us know what you think about the show. Submit your feedback at www.history.org slash podcast. Check history.org often. We'll post more for you to download and hear. (laughs) 